Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Elia Review of Books. This is episode 8 of the Elia Review podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Jennifer Coopersmith, the author of The Lazy Universe, An Introduction to the Principle of Least Action, published in 2017 by Oxford University Press. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hello. Jennifer, I love the title, The Lazy Universe, but what on earth is the principle of least action? Is it at all related to the path of least resistance or to entropy? (laughs) It is very similar to the principle of the path of least resistance. You could say that that is an example of the principle of least action. But now I'm going to explain it to you very briefly in a way which will be unfamiliar to every single physicist or scientist who thinks that they're very familiar with the principle of least action, which is testimony to its incredible wide range applying well outside the range of the physical sciences. And that is to say that the principle of least action has to do with how a system, any system, could be in the physical world, but it could be in the world of society, individuals, governments, and so on, how it organizes itself in order to behave in an optimal way. It's true that I can't say what optimal is, but it is an optimizing principle. So a system is something, incredibly generally, a system is something that has ingredients and structures of ingredients. So, for example, in a society, it is made up of individuals, and then there are structures, for example, Stanford University. Now, one of the problems is, is that the University of Stanford is made up of the individuals in it. And when students come, and they're freshmen, fresh persons, I don't know what you say. Anyway, then when they leave, they graduate, they're not the same as when they started. So that societal structure has changed them. So there's a constant interplay between that whole system, the individuals that make it up and the structures within it. And therefore, it's very difficult to have a principle that will govern the behavior of all those things together at one pass. And this happens in physics. And there is a compromise between the needs of particles that act selfishly, individually, somewhat randomly. So this is where your guess at entropy comes into it. And then whole structures like gravitational pull of a planet and um, a battery or what have you. Any physical system structure gives the marching orders to the individual particles or atoms, depends on the scale that we're talking about. So the compromise is this principle of least action, least effort. I won't try and explain it deeper than that because that is a difficult thing to do. But when it comes to society, we have the same thing and we end up with a principle of least societal tension, if you like. Now, in the physics case, we actually end up with formula. But when we come to society, people are much more difficult than physics. So we'll never get a formula out of it. 
that's not the sort of way in which I, I say that it has very wide ranging applicability. It will just give general guidelines, even to say that there is this problem of an interplay is already helping us to understand. Okay, but nevertheless, I do have some ideas, Tristan, of two ways in which our society, our modern democracy, could be improved. And you can ask me about that if you like. <laughs> I will. I will. It it sounds like the principle of least action is at one level very simple, and at another level extremely complicated. Is that about right? That is about right. That is about right. But I. You know, obviously, I want to concentrate on the the simple aspects. It's really only extremely complicated when it comes to formulae and seeing how it works through in this example or that example. But I still would like to hold on to the simplicity underlying it all. Actually, I think we should we should always remember that. Um, anyway, it's because I have given it to you in terms of a system with ingredients. That is, sounds like a pure philosophy class, a lesson in philosophy. And because I've been able to state it in such general terms, that is why I'm confident in thinking that it applies well beyond its usual remit of just physics. I'm very, very confident about that. But it's not going to apply in a way where you're going to be able to put numbers in and have formulae coming out and then say, aha, we need now to do this. No, but nevertheless, the advice and help that we could get from it is too big to be ignored. It's, even in science, it is quite remarkable. It's completely stunning the way it underlies every law of physics. Like, for example, energy is conserved. That can actually be deduced from the principle of least action, and that is an example in the lazy universe, which, which the reader can follow up. I just think it's the deepest principle in the whole of physics, and it is surprising that it is so little known, even within physics, even within physics. It's used, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's really understood, in fact. Is, is that so, why you wrote it? Yes. <laughs> yes, it just everybody has to know it. That's it. Well, I was going to ask you what should a general audience take away from it, but I suspect that your answer will lead us to these two ideas you have for improving democracy rather quickly. So let's just jump straight there. What are your two big ideas? Oh, well, my two big ideas are, and this is not something that I can prove from the principle of least action. No way. But anyway, we have democracies, and I feel that we're just at the infant or could we say adolescent stage of how to run a democracy, and in a, a well-functioning democracy, what we should have is no president, no Republican Party or Democrat Party. We should have a team of randomly selected citizens, and they have a paid sabbatical from their everyday lives, and they serve a term of presidential duties. I don't know the details, whether it should be three years, four years, what have you, but that is what I think. I, I think this will happen or we perish. It won't happen in my lifetime. This may be many decades, centuries ahead. I wouldn't know. But I do think that school children in the far future will be 
looking back and doing their history lessons and thinking, oh, you mean to say people actually voted for a person? Oh, and it depended on whether he had this colour hair or, or whatever. And I really think that that is going to go. I'm talking in the far future, and so we're talking about a society where there are very high levels, rates of numeracy and literacy. I'm talking about a society which is already running pretty well, thank you very much. And I think people perhaps don't realise that, in fact, we're, we're not that far from what I'm suggesting, that in Belgium they didn't have a functioning government for a few years. And things carried on because there's huge inertia. There are a lot of systems in place and they just rumble on as they should. So a certain amount of money has to get directed towards sources of energy, transport, education, what have you. And this happens. So when you do have the society that I'm thinking of, where you have citizens serving their term, they will, in effect, just be deciding on matters of fine-tuning, you could say. Because assuming you don't have an infinite amount of resources, then there will still always be decisions that need to be made. You know, should we spend more on this, that or the other? And those citizens will take advice from experts. But then there will be no corrupting influences from elections or any pressure groups. They will simply be doing their very best to listen to the evidence and make up their minds about this. I can't think of anything better. Anyway, my second idea is that the whole of society is one big consciousness, in fact. So, you know, people are worried now about the singularity, what will happen. You know, we're there already. The singularity is not going to be suddenly there are armies of robots taking over. In effect, I do believe that the society is already a consciousness of a sort. And we don't totally understand it any more than the, than the cells in our body understand who Tristan is and who Jennifer is, right? So we're part of this. Well, we do actually understand a bit more about our society than the cells in our body understand about us because we are the individual elements and we do have consciousness. So we can begin to just about intuit it. Well, you weren't kidding when you said that the principle of least action has broad applicability. Who has influenced your work over the years? Who do you read? In nonfiction, I have very much been impressed by a book written by one of your professors at Stanford, Ian Morris, Why the West Rules for Now, and also the work of Stephen Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and uh, Daniel Dennett, Consciousness Explained. Well, you can guess why I'm interested in, in his work. I, I feel he really nails it, actually. And obviously, as I'm talking about the whole of society being one great big consciousness, then it's something that's of very great interest to me. Stephen Pinker's work, The Better Angels of Our Nature, I really endorse his idea and impressed by his idea that of there is such a thing as progress, and we are evolving to be kinder and more intelligent as well, actually. He doesn't stress that, but I do think so. I do think so as well. So that is uh, an idea that I, I'm very, very impressed by. 
What about fiction? Any favorite novels or, or dare I ask, a favorite movie? Well, you dare ask, yes. So one of my favorite movies is About Time by the director, Richard Curtis, who's done a lot of other things that, that I like as well. And actually, I like this film About Time for a bit of a similar reason to why I liked Steven Pinker, The Better Angels of Anna Heacher, strange to say. And so it has uh, struck me that a lot of our youth are depressed, actually, and we tend to think of, it comes through in our art, obviously, that reality is always gritty reality. We don't have joyful reality. You know, we have soaps on, on British television, and one week the plot will be, uh, there'll be a heroin addict. The next time it's wife battering and so on. Now, obviously, these are real issues and they're dreadful, but there's never anything about how to be happy and not just how to be happy as a self-help thing, but just about people being happy. And in this wonderful film, the central character is a totally happy, happily married man. And his parents, who are also central to the book, are a happily married couple. They're just completely happy. And so you might say, well, there isn't enough tension there. But it works. It utterly works. And I thoroughly recommend people to, to watch this movie. My, my favourite novel, apart from I've done my film now, is War and Peace. And it's something for the same reason. Well, another one of Tolstoy's works is Anna Karenina, which starts the famous way, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. But you know what? I don't want to know another way in which the family <laughs> can be unhappy. Tell me how a family can be happy. And in War and Peace, there are some people, there's one scene where the characters are dancing and it's just the most thrilling scene. And they really go, the author really goes into how exhilarating it is. It's quite a long section. And that is what makes a life a few moments of absolute exhilaration when you're just doing something and you're just enjoying yourself so much. So he doesn't miss out misery either, but he really goes for that. Let's hear how to be happy, what it means, the joyful, the sublime moments, not, you know, nitty, gritty reality, but sublime reality. And that is what you want to, even when you read a detective story, anything, do you care? If the, if the characters are nasty, you don't really care. You don't want to know. You don't want to get into the criminal's head that much. You want a nice detective who's a bane, who does the crossword, who, you know, he's just a rounder character. Those are the characters you care about. And I really feel that that's what marks art, marks out high art to me. You're learning something. At the end of it, you're a changed person. You're wiser at the end of it. Otherwise, it's just entertainment. We have rapidly come to the end of our interview. It's been fascinating, but I have one final question for you, and that is, what's next? I imagine it might have something to do with consciousness, but I'll let you answer. 
Well, no, it doesn't actually. So it has to do with more on this theme of happiness, and it is a utopian fable. So when I had those ideas about a society where we have the citizens who have presidential duties and we don't have elections anymore, I have thought deeply about this. But this is going to be a fable because I want to do something which I haven't done till now. I want to show, not tell. And I don't know how good I'm going to be at that because my skill is really telling and explaining. And I love to do that. I love to work through the logic of an idea and explain it as simply as, as it can possibly be explained. So this is a, a total departure. And actually, one of the, the characters is a research physicist, ha ha ha. And there was too much physics coming into this book. So it spawned another book, which is what I'm writing right now. So I've got two on the go. And this one is called Physics and the Meaning of Life. Because there is a problem in, in physics. I sympathize with religious people, actually. I don't have religious beliefs. But, you know, we have F equals M times A, force equals mass times acceleration. So, you know, you throw a baseball and there's a force on it. And so it accelerates and has a certain trajectory. But we still haven't answered, why did anyone throw the ball? And I feel that really a complete physics should begin to answer that. And so I'm trying to do that. And that came about because I was trying to think into the far future what my character would do as she was researching physics. Wow. And, and there was too much physics coming into this book. And I thought, get out, get out. You're not giving a lecture now, <laughs> Jennifer. And so there we go. I've got two, two white horses on the go. Well, I look forward to inviting you when those uh, next books are released. I hope so. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. <laughs> okay, my pleasure. This interview was conducted on July 9th, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the ILEA Review of Books. Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com.